Welcome to Time in the Market, a podcast that profiles investors and their journeys. Time in the Market is brought to you by Shareholder Vote Exchange, the world's first marketplace for shareholder voting rights. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment advice. Please enjoy the show. Today, I'm delighted to have Richard Toad. He has a phenomenal YouTube channel and also writes a fantastic Substack on a variety of issues from hedge funds to deep dives on telecoms to everything else you can think of. Richard, how's it going? Hey, good. Thanks for having me on. Great, great honor to be on the show. So, Richard, so to start off with, I'd like to get a sense of how you would describe yourself as an investor. You know, most people would say they're growth investors or value investors. Uh, uh, how about you? Yeah, I would say I'm a growth, but at a reasonable price kind of investor. Uh, I am open to special situations, but we can dive into how I have evolved as an investor as well. Interesting. So do special situations also mean you're an event driven investor at times? Yeah, I'm not I would I'm not too clear about the distinction uh, be- between the two, but it has been used interchangeably uh interchangeably uh i think uh yeah it's it's about uh tends to be more uh off beaten paths than kind of investing in the business itself that relies more on a kind of catalyst driven approach that's generally what event driven means because it requires event to unlock value and so Mm -hmm. it traditionally has been bucketed in a pretty different uh, style investing from the the growth value and deep value that you talk about. I see. I see. Well, uh, actually, why don't we uh, dive in a little further? You said um, uh, I'd be curious to know how you kind of arrived at your style and maybe a couple of examples uh, that kind of show what your style would be. Yeah, I it's it's interesting. So I actually started as a deep value and traditional value investor, uh, because not because I believe in deep value, but because when you start out and you want to self teach investing, you tend to be exposed to the most traditional classic literature, such as uh, Graham and Dodd, and that's Ben Graham and uh, I don't remember what what. David Dodd, I think, yeah, Graham, Graham and Dodd type That's style right, Dodd. literature, and that will be your uh, uh, the intelligent investor type textbook, mm. and they tend to teach you the things that um, increasingly have become more competitive and more obsolete, if you argue, as an investment style, and um, and but they're focusing on things like net net, which is things are trading at a kind of net uh, net net cash value and stuff like that. But my evolution to growth at a reasonable value, uh, uh, growth at a reasonable price really happened when my, when I met my mentor who works at a wide mode growth mutual fund. Uh, we became very good friends and uh, she introduced me to the idea of quality as a margin of safety. Because if you think about traditional value investors focus more on financial margin of safety. So that's already a quite a new concept to me at the time. And at the same time, I was burnt in some deep value situations that I invested in. Uh, We can talk about uh, later in in the podcast. Um, So I increasingly value 
equality and secular trends as the new way to protect to, to protect myself of being wrong. And as I continue to work with other mentors with similar philosophies, it really cemented my investment style as what I describe as growth at a reasonable price, or another term will be white mold investing. Uh, example, it's it's really simple. Is is you think about you buying something, you you buying a company without paying too aggressive of a earnings or free cash flow multiple, but unlike a lot of catalyst-driven short-term investors that are focusing on uh, multiple expansion, which is mostly driven by per mar market perception of the company, I focus a lot more on buying at a reasonable price, not assuming the multiple will change throughout my investment horizon, but rather focusing on the fundamental of the business uh, growing rapidly during my investment horizon. So think of if you get paid, if your earnings growing 30% each year and you're holding the multiple constant, so you're compounding your capital, hopefully at a 30% CAGR, right? That's the idea. Uh, so, and, and, I, and everybody wants to buy those good businesses. It, it doesn't mean it's easy because you rarely get them at a reasonable multiple, but it's, it's actually pretty easy to find good businesses because you can screen for high, high return on investor capital businesses and everybody knows them, right? It's just hard to find them at the right price. And we talk about whether it's auto salvage yard, that's Copart or invisible aligner that's aligned technology or a uh, distributor business where your customer and supplier are both very fragmented. So you add a lot of value and have a lot of bargaining power. That will be a pool corporation. So ideas like that are fit into that bucket. Wow, very interesting. And I would personally put Costco uh, in there as well. Costco they, will be a great example. Uh, a little bit unique in that uh, people typically will associate good business with high margin, but Costco is not the highest margin business, but it has amazing turnover, right? And which are the yes. two components of high ROIC, right? Costco focuses on the, the turnover side, more on the margin side, right? Great example. Yep. And, th yeah. and the reason they are able to have high turnover is because the store itself is uh, the distribution center in most cases. You know, your supplier comes, they, they dump their uh, inventory, then the, the people come up, they pick up the items from the pallets themselves. So absolutely very interesting. Yes, that's right. Absolutely. Uh, Great example. So so you mentioned uh, moats earlier. Uh, actually, right out of college, I worked at Morningstar and uh, at Morningstar, I was researching um, regional banks and industrial REITs. I was an associate analyst. I didn't know anything, but Morningstar's moat methodology is extremely well defined. Um, so I have a really good, uh, I have an embedded sense of what a moat is, and that's the Morningstar methodology, right. which looks at five factors. The, these factors are network effects, intangible assets, which are usually regulatory moats, a cost advantage, switching costs, and what they call efficient scale. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm curious uh, how you think about moats, how you, you personally would define a moat. I would imagine some aspects of Morningstar's methodology uh, overlaps with what you think, um, but just curious what, how you define a moat. Yeah, great, great question. Uh, <clears throat> traditionally, 
when folks starting out as an investor, they are exposed to the framework by Michael Porter, who is a Harvard Business School professor who came up with the Porter's Five Forces framework. I definitely have kind of started from that uh, framework as well, but uh, uh, more recent years, I was introduced to the Seven Powers framework by Hamilton Helmer, who is a very seasoned business consultant, uh, sub, kind of consulting all sorts of industries throughout his decades of career as as doing doing what he does, and he has distilled his framework into a, the book called Seven Powers, where he lays out the seven features that could help a company within an industry sustain differential competitive advantage against its peers. Uh, we can we can kind of quick quickly run through that, but just just blasting through it. So you you talk about Stephen scale economics. That's definitely one scale economics, network economics. That's just his way of saying network effect, counter positioning, switch costs, branding, corner resources. That's your Morningstar framework on intangibles. And last one will be process power. And the great thing about these framework, including the Morningstar one, I'm a big fan of Pat Dorsey, who went on to, mm. he was the head of Morningstar, who went on to found his own firm, Dorsey Asset Management, one of the funds I uh, kind of relentlessly follow on a quarterly basis. Uh, these, these frameworks are great because it's one of the very few rigid things that you can rely on when you start as an investor that applies to every single business that exists on this planet. And someone has, when Helmer went on the Acquire podcast, the host asked him, is there the eighth power? And he said, well, like based on my decades of consulting experience, I haven't seen it. So you know it's exhaustive. And, and that's great because junior investors all, all often suffer from what well, where do I start what 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 do I okay I look at industrial read tomorrow I look at a regional bank where do I start it's completely different they have different accounting they have different competitive dynamics where do I start having an industry framework is always really important because it systemize systematize how you go go about identifying the presence or lack of competitive advantages well I, I really like that um, and uh, I'm I too am a big fan of the acquired podcast. Oh, that, uh, definitely, including, definitely, yeah. uh, That's probably why I talked about Costco because uh, it's very fresh on my mind. Shifting gears a little bit, uh, I'm curious what other investors you follow. So you mentioned Pat Dorsey. Um, are there is there anybody else who you track? Uh, the 13F followings of? Yeah, uh, I'm filings, uh, pretty uh, open-minded, but just given my presence as at, at the at the juncture of all sorts of investors as my followers and as my and my readers. But yeah, I I like to definitely stay uh, stay focused on the wide mode investor I respect. So there is a Warren Buffett in every country because I because if you're gonna ask me if I, my favorite investor and I'm not allowed to say Warren Buffett. Then I'll, I'll start with somebody like Terry Smith, who is the British Warren Buffett, who runs Fund Smith Fund out of, out of UK. And you have Prem Watsa out, out of Canada, the Canadian Warren Buffett, right? Guys like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I, I think I, let me pull up Data Roma, which is a tool I, I use extensively for funds I respect, you know, you know like people like uh, Valley Forge Capital, like very kind of under under the radar, a lot of the wide mode guys. 
um, and Mason Hawkins out of out of uh, Memphis, who runs uh, Southeastern Asset Management, like people like that. Uh, they're not like like high profile, like going on TV, CNBC every day, but they they've done really well, and they don't aggressively try to raise more money as size is enemy of outsized returns, right? So. Yeah, people like that, like like I said, Pat Dorsey and um, you know someone like Glenn Greenberg at Brave Warrior. I, I follow, and uh, I can't pronounce his last name, so forgive me for that. But William Vaughn something out of um, um, <laughs> oh my god, I'm struggling with the, with the name of the company. I don't even know the fund as well. But oh, like Cantalon, Cantalon Capital Management, based in New York. Uh, he's ex Lazar Asset Management, like very very kind of resonating with my type of investing. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I, see, I, I can see. go on, but yeah. I'll just stop here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. At shareholder votes exchange, we also follow the 13 uh, family of filings. So uh, this, of course, is a 13F, but we follow the 13Ds, mm -hmm. uh, which are, of course, uh, when a entity takes a 10% uh, stake mm -hmm. or actually a 5% uh, stake yeah. or more in any one uh, issuer uh, with the intent of effecting change. Uh, so, so not passive investors. Although, if passive investors uh, acquire more than twenty percent of a stock, they have to follow a thirteen D, regardless of their motivations. No, I did not know that. Um, I, I, I don't have the capital to ever take um, uh, twenty percent of any company. So, um, <laughs> so give me some time. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. When, when you're preparing content to be published mm -hmm. on Substack or YouTube, um, what what is the impetus for um, for your creative process? How do you identify topics to write about? Um, what do you think, uh, how do you go about uh, choosing a topic that you think will resonate with your audience? Uh, the short answer is you don't. Uh, as, as a, it's kind of like entrepreneur, you, uh, you, you, what you can try is uh, have your ears out on what other people are asking you. The great thing is I already have established my, so before I started writing, I already have an audience and they ask question. I, I let them ask me question on a monthly basis. And so I get question from my audience and clients on what their pain points are. And the, another easy way is to just talk about my pain, pain points as a non-traditional candidate when I break into the investment management profession. So that's on the career side. And I pivoted to do more learning side, which I'm super excited about because that's more mutually beneficial to me and to my audience. Uh, but uh, at, at the beginning, I struggled with coming up with the evergreen pipeline of content. But I realized I read a lot. I listen to podcasts. It sounds like Stephen, you do too, right? So I can summarize books, podcasts, and articles I've read. And over time, I can do works on stocks and share that too. That alone is evergreen as long as I spend time to consume the content first before I produce what I take away from those content. And and if it saves my audience time, I think my audience is appreciated. And so sometimes it's not really what you put out. It's also how you deliver the same content that your competitor, or I don't think of as competitor, your peers in the writing or uh, YouTube space are putting out, right? It's just the way you deliver it is your audience is receptive. That's why they follow you. So I wouldn't obsess so much for aspiring content creators about uh, what you put out. Rather, 
uh, kind of think about what makes your delivery unique. I think people found me really funny on Instagram. I started as an Instagrammer and uh, so I, I sometimes I forgot I need to just keep being funny and that's my angle. And so that would be a way to go about it as well. I see. What are all of the different channels that you publish your content on? Yeah, that's a great question uh, because uh, I, I've been thinking a lot. I, I've revamped over time a lot about kind of establish, establishing process for the distribution side of things from the content creation has always been there. But uh, to increase exposure, I, I got a lot of free tips from the, my predecessor success, super mega influencers who taught me virtually right how you think about it. So uh, my big place is still uh, my, my big focus right now is Substack and YouTube. To lesser extent, uh, I started as an Instagrammer, so that's where I have my most followers. I have about 16,000 followers on Instagram, but I, 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 I was struggling a lot with Twitter, but I'm getting some traction nowadays, so I, I do relative more on Twitter. And my last front of hurdle is the short form. So uh, that means Instagram Reel, uh, YouTube Shorts, and TikTok, where I have where I'm, I'm struggling to kind of get attention because short form is just a little bit different. And this is a uh, long focus reading thinking kind of profession. So maybe Absolutely. there's just an audience content mis mismatch, but I'm, I'm still working on So yeah, that's where all, all the places I have presence. And now I have this podcast, yeah. right? So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it's incredibly difficult to distill a lot of information into, you know, a 30 to 60 second short. Yeah. Um, I mean, <laughs> for for shareholder vote exchange, um, our social media presence uh, has mostly been on Twitter. Twitter. Mm. And it's really difficult to jam in information in 140 characters. Right. Uh, right. I, I guess you, you can go over, but I think we still try to stay within. I just can't talk about uh, like a shareholder meeting or a proxy <laughs> statement or define a bunch of things uh, without, you know, having hun uh, like dozens of replies uh, to your thread. Right. right. So, yeah. so I, I, I feel your, uh, uh, your frustration sometimes. <laughs> we, we've all been there. We re remember we don't own the platforms. Uh, the platforms are businesses as well. So they are changing it around to get their business to work, which could be to the benefit or to the detriment of the creators, right? And there's always the tension. I always say that's why newsletters are the best because you, the only true connection you have with your audience, no matter where they reside, is that email because that's the most immutable thing you can have with, with your audience um, because people don't change email that often. Yeah. One of the services we offer at Shareholder Vote Exchange is actually email-based. Uh, it's called an automated service and users who enroll in the automated service uh, allow uh, give us read-only access to their emails so we can uh, automatically verify uh, their voting emails so they don't have to manually uh, type in their control number and the other pieces of voting information. So um, email forever and forever. Yeah, email, that, that's the way. Uh, that, that is the way. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm curious. Um, of all of the channels that you publish on now, um, is there one or two that you f see yourself focusing more of your time on? Uh, or do you think uh, staying diversified for now is still a good approach? 
It's uh that that's that's a great question because the goal is to uh, maximize reach while you like an investor. There are two three things that matter to your your presence, and as a creator, there are two three channels that drive the growth of your presence. And to me, you can you unless you're completely oblivious, you can tell where the growth is. Um. I can definitely tell you as the Instagrammer, I'm struggling to grow on Instagram. I, I think it has a lot to do with their pivot to shorts or reels that they, they call it reels. Uh, so nowadays I'm very focused on creating long form content, both text and video based on the upstream. And then I can chop them up to distribute to as many platform as possible as short form content. And so, my top of top of stream focus right now is Substack and YouTube. Then I the see, rest is that, however much, however little time I can spend to chop them up and just post them across all these. I will do them. I don't care as much about engagement because um, I just don't have time to kind of tailor to everybody, right? But if they found me on uh, uh, like TikTok, I, I will try to funnel them to my YouTube, and you you get the idea. Ultimately have them funnel to my highest engagement growth channels of Substack and YouTube. Uh, but that can change based on if YouTube does something that uh, that right doesn't uh, if YouTube start focusing on shorts, then I'm in trouble again. Right. But um, but uh, that that's the way the world is going. So I need to pay attention to things like that. Yeah. So you notice that your Instagram engagement went down when Instagram started focusing more on their short form offering reels. Yeah. But you're saying YouTube, uh, you have not seen the same at YouTube? Yeah, I think YouTube has done a good job of uh, dual approach. They they, they, under, they are probably seeing the struggle of Instagram of uh, where I believe Instagram has antagonized their, their incumbent creators to promote folks who can really step it up on the short side because there is a war going on between Instagram and TikTok, right? Um, but YouTube, what YouTube has done is while maintaining the core long-form educational, more permanent search-based content creation mechanism, they just encourage you to also do shorts and they will find for people who have high engagement on one side of the two, they will funnel you to the other instead of pissing off like people who just do long form and say, okay, like I'm going to prioritize whoever only does shorts. I'll prioritize my algorithm will prioritize those. So, so it, it has been great. I, I, I can see I, at one point I was, I stopped doing shorts, but I'm back to doing just chopping up my long form video as shorts too, but link it to the long form. And it has been great. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I wonder to what extent uh, YouTube uh, is looking at the monetization or mm -hmm. maybe lack of monetization mm -hmm. with short form video at the moment. I think, you know, as followers of individual stocks, we know that Facebook or I guess Meta, Meta. Mm -hmm. uh, has has uh, has not been able to monetize uh, reels mm -hmm. at as high of a I guess cost per ad as their normal Instagram ads. Mm -hmm. it, it'll take time. Uh, at least that's what Zuckerberg said. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think, yeah, maybe YouTube is uh, uh, taking a step back. 
playing and, and seeing how things go. Yeah, YouTube is the kind of pioneer on uh, kind of sharing, like sharing the benefit, sh sharing the monetization with creators, and uh, TikTok is doing that too. With the I, I, I'm I'm not eligible because I'm, I'm I'm just not growing on TikTok, but the creator fund, right? And and now uh, X, uh, previously known as Twitter, right, is is paying creators as well, and so that's a trend that um, Meta sooner or later has to embrace i have no idea what uh, snapchat is doing but the stock tells me <laughs> not a lot right <laughs> they're not doing a lot and so uh let's we don't we i i can't speak on what snapchat is doing so <laughs> no. yeah depending on who you talk with uh if you talk with us at shareholder votes exchange we might say snapchat's not doing so hot because common shares have no voting power voting power versus evans right yeah e exactly mm. exactly yeah so, okay, uh, let's uh, shift gears one last time. Um, I'm curious to hear, uh, I, I have a series of kind of rapid fire questions sure. for you. Sure. Um, I, uh, so you don't have to uh, think about it too much. Maybe just the first thing that comes to your mind. Uh, I'd be curious to, to hear without a filter. So um, what's one of your best investments that you've ever made? Yeah, so I, I, I did get, so I, I talk about uh, meet, meeting my mentor and uh, I, as, a, as a result, I did get involved because I, I, I saw her fund owns uh, Align Technology and that, that's, that, that, was a, that was a triple for me um, as an exit um, and they, they, they make invisible aligners. So that's kind of a, a tailwind of business from your traditional, if you grow up in the U.S., I didn't grow up in the U.S., uh, I, I know kids here have like metal braces right back in it, it doesn't look that great but now you have these customized uh kind of invisible aligner throughout your treatment um kind of course i think it's like 13 or 26 weeks right and and it's each 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 treatment is different so you get like 20 sets of uniquely tailored aligners and and it's not easy to make those things and 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 the machines that use to kind of figure out your treatment plan it's proprietary too and so um when there was like a short selling report back in the days that came out, I think it was from Spruce Point. Um, I got involved and and yeah, I mean the, the stock has. I'm no longer involving the in the company because of there was like a pull forward when China reopening created a lot of kind of enthusiasm for the stock, and that's where I used the the pop to to exit the stock. I I don't think the company has the stock. Neither is the stock has done really well. So yeah, Align Tech has been, and it's actually a pretty solid um return on capital business too uh with a lot of tailwind high growth too yeah i see and that's uh ticker a l g n a l g n that's right yeah unless they change right. it yeah. <laughs> honestly with all of the corporate rebrandings uh maybe they'll be called yeah meta block x what's next micro maybe microsoft will turn into micro or something. <laughs> i don't know yeah <laughs> can't keep up <laughs> Okay. Uh, next quick question. Mm -hmm. uh, what's what's one of your worst investments? Oh, that's that's a funny one because I always use that in my <laughs> in my back back in the days as invest investment analyst interview too. So I was involved in GameStop before all these fiascos. So I was in, I I got interested in GameStop as a statistically cheap, high free cash flow yield uh, business. But in hindsight, it's it's a uh, cheap melting ice cube uh, and at the time uh, there was a 
publicized rumor that uh, two private equity firm, I think it was Apollo and Sycamore. Sycamore is more of a consumer specialist private equity firm that were rumored to take him out. Both walked away. Like, so, really? so the stock lost its support, like acquisition rumor support, and the stock fell like a lot. And then on top of like just the earnings results showing their deterioration is much faster than what the market was expecting. And yeah, I lost a lot of money. And that was one of those moments where I learned a deep value investor actually has very, like despite having financial margin of safety of like being cheap, like the business quality is actually deteriorating very rapidly. And without a catalyst of value realization, you're basically holding a melting ice cube or, or, more technical term is just intrinsic value of the business is eroding uh, as time goes on. So time is not your enemy when you're buying a declining business versus a growth investment. Um, so yeah, so GameStop will be one of my worst investment ever. <laughs> wow, very interesting. Yeah. Do you remember off the top of your head uh, how much you approximately bought it for and how much you sold it for? Uh, I can I can try. I think I bought it around like fifteen bucks a share. Uh, but even at 15 bucks, I remember mathematically it was uh, on like a 15% free cash flow yield. So it's like pretty cheap, wow. right? It's pretty cheap, but uh, because the free cash flow was eroding very quickly. So in hindsight, like the consensus free cash flow for on a forward basis is is, is like a, it's just an illusion. And uh, I think the stock got cut in half. So that's how, how much I lost. <laughs> I see. Yeah. I see. Um, hey, if only you were a soothsayer and you could uh, imagine what happened in 2021. Yeah, 40 bucks a share. Um, I'll take that. Yeah, that, that, that <laughs> I, I was way, I, I was out way before that. Yes. <laughs> how, how that became the poster child of now they have a movie out, right? So that's pretty unreal. Right? Movie. Yeah, out it, it actually is. Yeah. I think this might be the first movie that covers uh, something actually very deep finance since uh, like the big short. Big short, yeah, yeah, with with like yeah. with uh, Steve Carell and and and, and uh, uh -huh. what's what's that? Um, what's what's Batman? Uh, Christian Bale, right? Yeah, that. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, I guess because you bring up movies, we have to ask you, what's your favorite movie? Oh, that's easy. Wall Street. Wall Street one. Like I can't really? remember. I can recite the lines. Like like Wall Street one. Michael Douglas, Charlie Sheen. Like it's really simple. Yeah. That I I don't even. That's actually a fire rail. Like that, that was just so simple. Yeah. Maybe you're too young to know, but you gotta you gotta watch the <laughs> watch the uh. What what do they do nowadays? They they watch like the color enhanced version because the movie was shot in the 80s, and so but you I'm sure they have like digital enhancement. Watch the enhance. But yeah, that's like the classic. Like Michael Douglas as as kind of an embodiment of a combination of Ivan Bosky and Carl Icahn, right? And and so, yeah, just a classic. Like the lines, I, I can, I, I know hardcore finance guys from my generation, They we can all recite like a lot of the lines in, in that movie. Yeah, so Wall Street 1. <laughs> yeah. Wall Street 1. Wall Street I 1, see. yeah, yeah. But maybe for your generation, oh. it's probably either Margin Call or uh, Big Short. <laughs> the big show i see yeah I, I i do like both of those movies yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and I, I really like michael lewis as a writer mm. uh, moneyball uh, was a fantastic read even though i have very little sense of what baseball uh actually is <laughs> well i'm from another country so i definitely don't know what baseball is, is like until <laughs> yeah many years into my time in the states yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah.
Okay. Um, uh, final two questions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what is a industry or theme that you think investors should open their eyes up to? It could uh, be emerging. Yeah. It could be declining, but you think it's still relevant. Uh, what do you think? Uh, another great question. Um, I, I I told my audience this before as well. I heard this from Carl Kowaja, who is one of the most senior guys at Capital Group, which is like one of the mega longlies. Uh, on a, he he said on a podcast, like people should pay attention to energy transition. It's quite a big deal because think about energy consumption is so fundamental to the continuity of mankind in the future, right? But uh, the, the problem is <laughs> it tends to be most lumped into energy and utility. So it's not the most interesting sectors to many aspiring investors who all want to cover tech or, or some sort of tech, right? Though I do suspect more sectors, including the tech itself, will play a role in addressing the dramatic revamp of the value chain in this theme. So there's many ways to play, and, and there are going to be winners, losers, and fads. Like whoever can allocate capital correctly can make a big fortune in this theme for many decades to come. Uh, there are going to be a lot of changes, and, and it's, quite a, it's, it's a problem because EVs getting more penetration right our our grid utility grid cannot handle all the demand for electricity and all that stuff right and we need we need to think about transitioning from uh like there's all our environmental stuff right you saw people protesting in front of city group i thought it was pretty funny on like twitter and but like transitioning from right and nuclear is not that safe right so where are we gonna get all the energy to replace like coal and traditional fossil fuel right it, it's it's um, it's it's a serious trend, but uh, yeah, to some people, including myself, yeah, it's hard to be engaged, hard to find it interesting, right? Because it's like energy and utilities. But yeah, big thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's actually such a, such interesting theme you bring up. I remember uh, at the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting this year, mm -hmm. um, there was a question about you know Berkshire Hathaway's uh, energy segment. I think it's just called Berkshire Hathaway Energy. And I think the question was framed around uh, when will Berkshire Hathaway Energy stop reinvesting and start distributing dividends back up to Berkshire Hathaway corporate? Mm, and see. I think, I don't know, it was Warren or Charlie, they're like, oh, well, you know, we are capital allocating to what we believe are, is the best use of capital where we can see high ROICs yep. and where we can establish presence. Um, so, so even uh, old Warren and, and Charlie know uh, uh, about the electrical transition. Yeah, but that's also telling you they probably have a view that oil is going up. So capexing is actually good ROIC. So and uh, so mm. environmental stuff ha have to take a backseat <laughs> for now. <laughs> <laughs> what is, what is Occidental, right? They own like Occidental in, in a major way, right? Uh, yeah, so... <laughs> Uh, hard. Yeah, it, so it's, it's hard. It, it's it's a big trend of uh, well, we, we, that's very pertinent to you guys. Is like the big trend of uh, shareholder value versus stakeholder value. How to balance between the two, right? When I was in business school, I remember someone talking about right going going forward. Do you need to take take care of your immediate ecosystem, right? Your stakeholder, right? your supplier, your customers, right? All that stuff, and and it matters more than just okay. Uh, I deploy capital, I earn good return on it. That's value creation, right? Um, so um, it's, hard, it's tough balance. But uh, as you also talk about 13D, right? There, there's a lot more 
investor who are agitating for things like that. Uh, so um, that's that's where we are going. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think uh, in the CFA curriculum, uh, and I'm sure in business school, I mean, I didn't go to business school, mm-hmm. so I wouldn't be able to tell you, but uh, there's often this concept of uh, shareholders uh, get the say because they get the voting power, mm-hmm. but uh, st- uh, but under what's called the stakeholder theory, uh, stakeholders actually uh, have a massive say in the company's operations and its uh, uh, longevity. So companies that are sh- uh, short-sighted and only care about profits for shareholders uh, may be uh, kicking themselves in the butt. <laughs> right, 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 right. Absolutely. Yeah. According to according to stakeholder theory. Right, of course. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everyone has different motives, right? So, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right, final question for final you, question. Richard. Let's, let's do it. Um, what's, uh, what's something you wish you knew three or five years ago? If you could go back in time and give yourself one piece of advice or wisdom, what would that be? Uh, is it related to me as an influencer or as an investor or, 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 or both? <laughs> I guess it can be both. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, whatever one you think is more important. I, I guess I can, well, I, I can give you both. Um, okay. Because I, I thought about both. Uh, I, I can give you both. I, let's let's talk about creators. So creators. Uh, it, it's funny because uh, I literally started as a creator about oh my oh my god time really flies uh, about three and a half years ago, and uh, I wish I knew many of my influencer predecessors who are like wildly successful. They provide the free contents to help me. I wish I knew that. We wish uh, whether it's dealing with haters, like dealing with hating comments, or creating system and processes for content creation, or how to monetize. There are a lot of people I want to thank. It's just I don't know them personally, but they put out great free content that solved the problems when I had them. And just throwing three names like Vanessa Lau, who is a like a mega social media person. Justin Welsh, who is a, a, a solo, who helps solopreneurs uh, succeed at, at their own, and 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 a another mega uh, YouTuber, Ali Abdal out of London. He has like four million and counting like followers, and like yeah, to to start. So that will be on the social media side. As an investor, what I wish I knew, I I, I always tell my audience, I wish I read less investment books and read really? more yes yes i wish i read less investment books i wish i read less investor letters uh, these are all things i did now i realize and someone pointed out on twitter i wish i read less books and investor letters and instead spend more time doing work on single stocks because it's kind of like a hiding mechanism to because it's always easy to listen to other people talk about how they did their diligence and when you read the third or actually when you read the fifth like value investor book there's marginally very few very few incremental insights you get because the framework is not what makes you money it's the practice of it and every stock you, you will ever work on every investing will have its own nuances and the pattern recognition really comes from Knowing the industry, knowing the business, knowing how the stocks trade, knowing why you were right or wrong. And that process 
doesn't come from reading another how another investors uh, pitching a new stock. It, it can help, but uh, it, it's kind of when when you want to do that again next time. Remember, once it's it's only applicable to people who somewhat know what they're doing, and, and that that just means hit three to five classic investment book. Follow a few investor. You want to read their quarterly letter. That's fine. But once you've done that, really stop hiding from doing doing like applying the skill to real situation that you think are actionable and and because you're gonna run into things you never seen like accounting or or industry nuances and so really pivot very quickly to working on. I think it would have made me a much better investor than. Being able to recite, uh, like I, we 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 had this conversation earlier about I know who's who in the hedge fund and mutual fund world, but that doesn't make you money, right? That 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 just tells me you know a lot of people who knows how to make money. But <laughs> if you want to be a single stock picker professionally, um, start working on ideas yourself. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, right. So looking at people who are successful is definitely a backwards-looking indicator, uh, and. There's probably some survivorship bias there yep, as well. Absolutely, that's a but, good point. I didn't but, think about that. Yeah, yeah, but but then identifying, researching, digging into stocks uh, actually uh, has very high incremental returns. Wow, yeah. this is fantastic, Richard. Uh, I very much appreciate your insights, and I'm sure all of our listeners do as well. I'm glad. I I, I hope so. Yeah, uh, yeah, def definitely. Yeah, de definitely. Hope, hope, hope to be of value here, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I love it. I, I think, uh, uh, yeah, I think the, the the good thing about public is information is out there, but uh, having the process is difficult. We talk about the industry framework, like Seven Power or Morningstar framework. Those is a priority for everyone who wants to be more informed on how to go about analyzing business. And of course, the financial side of things is as, uh, but there's so many courses or just like build a model, right? Really like to, to analyze companies and those are all doable on your own. And so the rest is your passion and your desire will, will take you very far, but that's true for every profession, right? Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So where can listeners find you on all of the channels that you publish your content on? Yeah, well, uh, listeners can find me everywhere on the internet. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so just, just uh, in general, I I've, I've gone through a rebrand. Uh, so in general, the 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 keyword of rich underscore toad t o a d like the frog is kind of my brand identity across all sorts of internet. So yeah, just you can yeah, can actually just like Google Richard Toad and you can find me find my presence and they all interlink with each other, so they will funnel me to all my other presences. But yeah, it depends on what your goal is. If you're more of a visual person, then you can find you can you know subscribe to Richard Toda YouTube channel. And if you're more of a text-based, deep thinking kind of person, then I would definitely recommend the Substack where I publish weekly basis on all sorts of investing and business-related topics. All right, uh, that's great to hear, Richard. Uh, thank you so much, and we'll call it a day. Sounds good. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Very, very, very nice to be here.